Welcome to the Today's Market Explained podcast. I am your host, Brian Castle, and with me, as always, is the amazing co-host, Chris Reardon. Chris is the Director of Development, and I'm the CEO and founder of Four Star Wealth Advisors. Our promise with this show is to share the most important investment opportunities that we are seeing in ways that are easy to understand and hopefully even easier for you to benefit from so you can make money quickly and easily by investing. Each episode will detail the most important market updates and how best to benefit from them. And we will also be interviewing subject matter experts who can give insights into new and exciting markets and other investment opportunities. So to maximize every episode's value, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com to download, quote, 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals, unquote. Trust us, this free gift will be your cheat sheet for reaching your financial goals in the shortest possible time. And to see all the best and most valuable moments from this episode, please go to Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, let's see what's happening in the financial markets. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Star Podcast. Your host, uh, Brian Castle, my co-host, Mr. Christopher Reardon. Chris, welcome back to our podcast. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, great. Everybody, you know that Chris is our Four Star Director of Development, and that's becoming a bigger and bigger role at Four Star. He's the master of all things portfolio, trading reports, still loves his Cleveland Indians. And they're in town in Chicago right now. They won last night, didn't they? No, they lost last night. They split the series. They won two nights ago. Okay. You can, you can have your Cleveland Indians. Okay. And uh, he's a caretaker of his new golden doodle puppy. And we are very proud to have you back in the podcast again as co-host Chris. Yeah. Thanks again. And I'm Brian Castle, founder and CEO, CIO of Four Star Wealth. I'm an Eagle Scout, uh, trustee of the National Boy Scout Foundation, uh, philanthropic advisor, advisor to CEOs and insiders, uh, father, uh, dad, chief dad to Quinn and Evan, and husband to the amazing Tripti. Uh, and we are ready to go. And I will say, just as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing, please tell your friends, give us a five out of five, um, you know, and tell your friends to give us a five out of five as well. So... Today, we're gonna to start out with our standard plan, uh, markets about the economy and what we see out there. And we are going to call this episode, Even the Apples Are Back. And I'll explain what that means later on. Uh, today, we've got two guests on the podcast. We've got uh, Mr. Good Friend of Four Star, Mr. Tom Harden, and he's with the Canterbury Group, which is an investment firm that does very similar work to what, what we do at Four Star, where we do rotation in and out of the market and we can tell what groups of the market are doing better so tom from canterbury will be on and also we're going to check in on commercial real estate now that everyone's coming back to offices what's going to happen with commercial real estate are people going back into those big office towers that were virtually empty six months ago uh, we're going to hear from bill himmelstein and bills with the tag group uh, chicago-based firm but they work uh, with folks all over the country so that should be an interesting podcast. Chris, let's get into the markets. What are we seeing? Where's our positioning as we speak now in the financial market? Yeah, uh, not a whole lot of change, actually, which I think would surprise some people with the volatility we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the market. Uh, but we still have domestic equities in the number one position for us. Um, and it really hasn't changed since the last podcast. So it's still holding uh, strong in the 315 position. 
Uh, in the number two position, commodities uh, gained a point from the last podcast, so it's at 269 now. So um, even though we've seen some commodities drop off, the overall commodity sector as a whole um, has held up pretty well. Um, we've seen some drop off. We've seen oil um, and other commodities kind of rise up. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, international equities still maintains the third position equal. It's at 250. So still really a two horse race, I would say for the number two position between commodities and international equities. Although commodities seems to be uh, putting a little bit more distance now. It's getting almost up to 20 points now, distance between both of them. Then mm -hmm. uh, rounding out the bottom three, we still have fixed income. I was minus one from the last podcast at 112. Uh, so, you know, continues to kind of slowly creep down. Uh, we have in the fifth position <coughs> cash, uh, that's at 93, equal from the last podcast. And uh, rounding up the bottom, it's been there for a while now, currencies, and it was minus two at 48, which I'm pretty sure is the lowest I've ever seen a position go, um, is currencies in the, in the sixth position or the last position. So this is still a risk on market, Chris, isn't it? This is a market where uh, the expectations right now is that they continue, continues to go up. Yeah, no, I mean, we, you know, the top three asset classes um, are, are all risk on. Um, and I mean, even in that two position, like I said, the two asset classes that are really going back and forth are both commodities, international equities, uh, which some would say are probably the two riskiest, you know, of, of yeah. asset classes. Well, and by way of reminder, currencies, uh, dollar, dollar is, is money market and currency meanings dollars in someone else's currency, right? Uh, so the U.S. dollar has still been acting well, uh, although it's been fading a little bit. But nonetheless, uh, the areas of growth and, and emphasis should be in the more aggressive asset classes and the markets are st still signaling they're going up. Um, but Chris, you know, the numbers you gave weren't many changes between the asset classes in this period since the last podcast. So that would kind of signal that maybe the markets have been kind of simple and easy, but as, as we both know, they weren't, right? So a week, a week and a half ago, we had fresh highs in the market and most of the indexes. And then we had a five-day market pullback. It was really messy, really sloppy. A lot of the things that had been working for months stopped working. And a lot of the things that hadn't been working started working for like four or five days. Like technology has been terrible. Now all of a sudden technology is rallying. And then all those dividend stocks and the small caps and the international stocks that were starting to work, they all went down. So we saw just a huge reversal, about a five-day move. And then Monday and yesterday, we saw it go back the other way again. So uh, where does this all go? I guess we don't really know, but we're gonna have five-day pullbacks in any normal rally market. So it could have been just a little pullback, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we've talked about this. There's definitely gonna be an increased amount of volatility in the market um, and volatility uh, to reiterate, it's both the upside and downside. So we're going to see strong up days as well as strong down days at certain points. Uh, but I think I would still characterize this. You know, it's been this way for the last three or four years. Uh, the market is a very event-driven market. Um, and the volatility that was interjected mostly last week uh, was due to some, some of the stuff that the Federal Reserve said in one of their meetings. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's the market's very sensitive right now. And, and it's, I would say, very, very sensitive to whatever the Federal Reserve is going to do, uh, especially from a monetary policy perspective. So, um, 
you know, anything that happens there could throw a ton of volatility in the market as we saw last week. And uh, once again, we saw volatility this week, but for the most part so far, it's really been in the first couple of days of volatility upwards. Kind of a yeah. rebound back. A rebound volatility, which is okay. But yeah. volatility is scary either way, but on the upside, better than the outside, right? Most people don't mind the upside volatility. Yeah, yeah. So the big news and why it happened was because of what the Fed said. So we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and talked about, oh, we're not expecting to see much change in the Fed. The policy rate is between zero and 0.25%. Rates are going to stay low. The rates may jump a little bit and then come back down. So no real big changes. We're in this not too hot, not too cold rising market. But the Fed came through and said, gee, we're seeing signs of inflation that may be transitory but we may increase rates now before 2023 and certainly twice by the end of 2023. Now that's two years away, right? But but yet they made a point of saying that, and that was a change because they were saying they weren't gonna increase rates until until 2023. So they left the door open to increasing them between now and then uh, and maybe into 2022. So those little nuances are just enough to get everybody to go into a complete panic and anything that was going to be worried about inflation decided to just completely collapse and everything that you know was the opposite like technology went up so now maybe we've gotten this out of our systems uh, we did put out a blog post talking about inflation and we put out two of them now about what companies are doing chris with costs and they're passing that on to our and to the consumer, and we're all seeing it, right? Gas prices are up, consumer prices are up, bacon is up 13% for the month of May. Uh, a lot of food prices are up, right? You're seeing it too, Chris, aren't you? No, yeah. I mean, I think um, you, you, if you go to any restaurant, you talk to the owner of the restaurant, I mean, all of them, I've spoken to a couple of them, and they'll say, you know, they'll talk about how their food prices are going up. You know, they use the example of, you know, a, a chicken wing or, you know, uh, a wing that you'd usually get. How much does that wing cost? You know, usually yeah. it's very small, but if it goes up, you know, even 10, 15 cents, that ends up, you know, in some adding 20, 30% on, onto the cost of the wing, which adds 20, 30% onto the cost of the, um, the entree. Exactly. Well, and then shipping costs more. So even, even commodities that aren't seeing their commodity price go up they're seeing prices go up because it costs more to get things to the store. So, um, you know, now everything's coming back and some of the systems for delivery aren't quite ready for it. So then uh, shipping costs have gone up. We've seen Amazon raise their costs as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things are going up and, you know, the big story, the big poster boy for this little inflation move was lumber prices and lumber went up to $1,700 per thousand board feet and then just recently went down 40% from the high. I think the price was $998 the other, uh, just yesterday. So the supply chain for lumber was fractured. So the ability to recover was somewhat damaged. So they just didn't have enough lumber and prices went parabolic. Mm-hmm. And that happened. And we saw that in a number of other commodities as well. We talked in the podcast before how we've already seen this in cars. We've seen it in and real estate and other assets and other commodities. So um, it's interesting, oil prices also topped on the 7th of June, uh, $70 per barrel, West Texas Intermediate Crude. Now some of those 
broader base crude numbers are in the mid 70s, $75 a barrel. And we're seeing it at the pump, right? They're increasing. They always increase gas prices at the pump quick. But then when prices go down, they always slow down, right? They don't, they don't lower them as quick as they raise them, do they? Oh, that's very true. They're always incentivized to try to hit you as hard as they can, as quick as they can with that price increase. But there's always a lag, right? So uh, anyway, so the so the press or so the Fed says transitory versus systematic inflation. Lumber was a transitory spike, apparently, uh, but you know there there could end up being a general rise in prices. The Fed's saying probably not. Uh, Chairman Powell the other day said clearly we will not have seventy style inflation. That's what he's saying. Oh, we hope he's right. So um, anyway, wheat prices have gone up, uh, but then uh, other grains came down dramatically. We talked about lumber. Uh, the Fed say, said they would begin to raise rates earlier than they thought, but certainly twice by the end of 2023. So we'll see where that goes. And uh, Chris, you had some other commodity prices that went up as well, right? Yeah, so I mean, there's been a lot. Commodities have been, um, interestingly enough, it, it, uh, the actual asset class as a whole has held tough. But, you know, within that, there's been some areas that have uh, fallen back a little bit off of highs. Uh, one of them has been really uh, industrial metals. So the copper, um, zinc, um, and, and several have kind of fallen back off and, and they pulled back a little bit, mostly due to really a rumor that came out and the Chinese did confirm it a little bit uh, that um, China was gonna release some of its reserves. So they saw, hey, the, the prices are so high right now, why don't we release some of our reserves, flood the market a little bit more with, with more supply, which is gonna bring that price down, assuming demand does not spike uh, coincidentally yeah. with it. So, uh, and then on the flip side of that, same kind of issue going on in China. We spoke about this on the podcast um, maybe two years ago, uh, maybe even going back three years, but uh, China ran into this big problem a couple of years ago where they had a real sw like swine flu famine on their hogs, uh, hog crops. Uh, and what happened is it decimated it. And, um, you know, China's the biggest consumer of pork in the world. And so what that did is it drove the price of hog, you know, bacon, which is essentially bacon, all that stuff uh, up yep. heavily. And um, so now you had a lot of people incentivized to raise hogs and then bring them to, to market. Well, the prices are still, were still really high. People tried to cash in. And as they tried to cash in, they started flooding the market more, driving the price down. More people got scared. So they started you know, going, bringing their hogs to market. And um, we've seen the price of hogs come down considerably, mostly due to the fact that you have this People trying to get to the market before everyone else to try to get their, you know, their um, hog prices in locked in at a at a more beneficial rate to them. That's the way markets work, right? Prices go up, everyone jumps in. Prices go back down. So uh, yes, well, that's interesting. So turning to the economy, unemployment uh, claims have been higher than expected, and there's pretty much general consensus among economists, except for political economists, of course that the policies of keeping the federal assistance on unemployment and the extra surcharge is keeping folks from working. Uh, we have, uh, it's too attractive to sit at home. There's 9 million jobs unfilled and you know, over 10 million people still sitting you know, unemployed. So there's a big gap there, but if you can get $32,000 a year, so you and your spouse or partner and get 64,000, you add in some tax credits, you're close to $80,000. Uh, 
to sit on the couch and watch, watch Netflix, there are some people will, that will make that decision. So, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that's happening. Many states now have now pulled back on that and said, we do not want the surcharge anymore. We want to turn this money back to the federal government, and they're doing that. And the states that are doing that are doing a lot better. They're showing job growth, uh, and they're in much better shape. But Chris, you, you had uh, looked into signing bonuses. Aren't companies paying signing bonuses now to get employees? Not only companies, it's, uh, you know, signing bonuses for, for maybe a, a, you know, corporate job or something, you know, is not unheard of, but it's starting to get now more heard of to get a signing bonus to be a, um, uh, uh, be working at a restaurant, to be like a server or to be a, uh, that front, um, I can't think of the name now, but the receptionist up front kind of, um, so we're seeing the supply and demand for restaurant workers, you know, so out of balance that they have to go out and give them a $200 uh, signing bonus to, you know, just attract talent. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy because it's always been considered in the job market that um, factory jobs usually tend to have a little bit higher of a wage. Um, mm -hmm you know, then maybe a restaurant job or, or something comparable. Well, now we're starting to see that shift a little bit because restaurants have had to raise wages so much, have had to enact uh, signing bonuses that we're starting to see factory workers start to migrate from factories over to restaurants because it's going to be becoming a little more attractive now. Uh, so right. we're really seeing a lot of play in the market now as we've had really, I would say, a labor shortage you know, characterized by some of the policies that you talked about, Brian, um, that we're seeing things that have, would have been unheard of, you know, high schoolers going to get their, their classic summer jobs and getting a $200 signing bonus, you know, it's uh, things that you kind of wouldn't think would ever really happen for, you know, a job that is, you know, handing out uh, menus or something at, you know, at the local yeah. time. They just need people. Well, it's also affecting like the PPI and retail sales, right? Yeah, so the PPI for the first time, we're, we're starting to see the PPI spike, uh, and that's the or, um, the producer price index. So what that really means is, you know, what we talked about, so that's the back-end costs of, of these restaurants, maybe food, uh, things that they have to purchase. So that jumped up, um, point, it had a 0.6 increase from March to April. Um, the average increase is 0.2%. So, we're, you know, we're seeing that two, three times what the average usually is. Um, and the producer price. So that's kind of in the back end cost. And then the CPI was the big number that came out. And this scared a little bit of folks, but I think the, the thing to caution is it's transitory. Uh, like Brian had said, um, that's what the Fed's saying is the CPI came out at 5%. Uh, and that's the largest reading, month over month reading since 2008. Uh, so we are seeing a big jump there. But I think when you think about inflation, you really have to look at kind of what happened before. And specifically, specifically, if you're looking year over year, you know, look at where we were a year ago. Um, so that would be the case for transitory inflation, you know, with, with how low we were a year ago to where we are now, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense or and that makes sense. But, um, you know, month over month, that's where I think we have to keep a little bit closer of an eye. Yes. So seeing a little spike. And of course, we had expected the Fed meeting to be very quiet. And they'd keep the policy rate where it was, but it turned into a big melee for, for about four or five days in the market after what they said. 
And the Federal Reserve had also been buying 120 billion worth of bonds every month, and they're going to still continue to do that. So they haven't announced their tapering yet. And tapering would just mean that they buy less than 120 billion a month, maybe 110, then 100, then 90. And what they do is they bring in bonds, they bring in bonds to the Fed's balance sheet, but then cash goes out into the economy and they put that money in the banks, they put that money in other places. And so they're keeping the economy very liquid. So even though we saw a five day swoon in the market, there's still so much cash out there. That's what's driving up this, what, what they think will be transitory inflation and also other prices, right? It's also driving up, we're seeing price inflation in the stock market. So yeah. we'll probably still continue to see that. Uh, and that translation would mean that the market would go up if that continues. And it's really hard to tell what will happen to the stock market. We've never put the equivalent of $12 trillion into our economy before. I think the largest stimulus prior to this was $880 billion in the Obama administration. So what does the economy do and what do the markets do and all the asset prices do when you put $12 trillion? It's really pretty much anybody's guess. But I suspect it's not over and the money is still coming out. So um, we'll see. Uh, the Biden administration did make a proposal for spending for the year, and they announced that they wanted to spend $6 trillion in the next year fiscal budget. But there's only about $4 trillion in current uh, taxes that come in and revenue to the federal government, not just taxes. So that's the largest increase in spending ever. So um, we took a closer look at that and said, well, there must be some reason they're doing it. We must be getting better growth or there's gonna be job growth or something like that. So we looked at what they said when they made that release and they said, gross domestic product is expected to go up 4.2%, Chris, between now and the end of 22. Uh, and that's you know the recovery gross domestic product. But then after 22, it goes down to 1.9%, which is an anemic growth rate, which was exactly what the growth rate was during the Obama administration. So if we're gonna get job growth or GDP growth, um, we're not seeing that, right? They're not even announcing that. And you know, the government has been guilty for years of coming up with rosy scenarios and projecting bigger GDP than they thought they would ever get. But this budget, they're not even predicting that. They're telling you, we're gonna go back to slow growth. Does that make any sense to you, Chris? No, oh, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a couple ways they can, you know, rationalize spending that money. One is you, you try to build in GDP growth. Uh, two is you decide you're just going to tax certain people more, tax, put more taxes in, raise more revenue, right? Uh, right. And the third revenue, which is quite frankly the worst, if they're actually trying to do it, is you just go into more debt. All right. So we're adding debt, but we're not getting any growth for it. We're not seeing any employment growth except for we're seeing higher government spending, but that spending is not considered to have a multiplier effect or they would have more GDP growth in there, right? Mm -hmm. So now it's just government spending for government spending and no growth, that doesn't make any sense to me. So many people are not, not terribly thrilled with this. The Biden administration had seized on the, had previously said that no one under 400 thousand in income would see their taxes higher, yet the Trump tax cuts are being allowed to expire in the budget. 
So that's not actually true. So people will see tax increases. Mm -hmm. uh, They're also asking for corporate tax increases. And the opposition in Congress is saying, no way, Jose, we're not going to raise taxes. And so far, they've held to that. So um, it's going to be very interesting. Capital gains in their proposal would go to an all-time high. And the previous growth economy tax policy literally brought trillions of dollars back to America, money that was sitting offshore because they didn't want to pay the tax rates in America. And the corporation, the international corporations can do that. And so they bought trillions of dollars back to America. And then they were investing in plants and equipment in America. So we saw steel industry. We saw a lot of other industries that basically had left America coming back. So that's the kind of tax policy we need to keep leading to job growth. And that's, that's what we're hoping that they do. But if they raise all those tax rates, it could really slow down growth, which is my, maybe they're saying there's not going to be growth. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting because the U.S. is such a fascinating country. I think you, you, we're seeing this play out to a degree in, in the, the states, right? Because states also have, you know, their own tax rates. Some are higher tax states, some are cheaper tax states. Um, so it's its own little kind of countries, if you can imagine them. And where did a lot of people move over the last couple of years? They moved from high tax states to lower tax states. They moved to Florida, they moved to Texas. You know, we saw high population growth there. So, you know, it shows that people are, you know, wanting to move away from that. And it's, um, you know, so we're already seeing that play out a little bit. People have that choice. It's a lot harder to move to a different country, but if you incentivize people enough, people will do it. Right, no doubt. Well, and we're, and we're seeing, um, we're not seeing the effects of these negative proposals yet because they haven't gone through and it would take a period of time before if they did pass that they'd have to go through the economy before it infect uh, growth. But, you know, we are seeing inflation. So we did put out a blog post about inflation being good for stocks or bad for stocks, question, right? And so basically Janet Yellen, now Treasury Secretary, said that, uh, they think there's no correlation between the price increases and what will happen to inflation, but that inflation still would be good for stocks. And I'd say in the short run, inflation does work positively in, in the favor of a growing economy. We do need 2 to 3% inflation every year. However, there comes a point where inflation then works negatively on the economy in later stages of the economy. So we put out a note saying inflation is not really good long-term for stocks. Uh, Janet Yellen is saying that it is. We don't agree. Uh, JP Morgan Research is saying that there's no correlation. Other studies have shown that obviously it's not a positive thing for stocks. So we don't want hyperinflation. We don't want you know, really growth of inflation. Uh, but we need some basic inflation in a normal economy. But we're already there. We don't need any more than we have right now. So hopefully they, they, they knock it off, right? Yeah, I mean, you want, you want, you know, the basic principle of inflation is you want people incentivized to spend, right? If it, the worst case is if you go to deflation because if things are cheaper, so if deflation things are getting cheaper in the future, then why would you buy something now if it's gonna be cheaper in three months? Yeah, so we, uh, we just wanna clarify with everybody, you know, everyone's uh, hyperventilating about inflation and we don't think inflation is great for stocks long-term, but we, as Chris said, we do need a certain level of low inflation always in the economy. And that's how a normal economy functions, kind of two to 3% inflation. Uh, so 
Um, anyway, Chris, moving to the, what we see out there, we see a lot of optimism in the economy. So since the whatever negative effects of some of these policies that might go through hasn't happened yet, uh, people are uh, continuing to feel very good about life right now. Uh, we're, we're continuing our tour of America. And I was out in Lake Erie fishing a couple of weeks ago with a group of great guys. And there were literally hundreds of boats out there, boat charters, people out having fun, uh, pulling in 30 fish or whatever their catch was. I think six per person, I think on Lake Erie that day. Uh, I went to a Cubs game. Uh, it was total madness, 100% uh, capacity and the place was full and, and it was really hot and it was sweaty and the beer was flowing. Everyone was having a great time. So things are starting to come back. Um, uh, Chris, uh, there are some changes going on though in the uh, subsidies of uh, airplanes, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah, so that was big news uh, the last couple of weeks. So um, US and the EU decided to suspend their trade dispute. Uh, this has been a long, very long trade dispute between Boeing and Airbus over uh, airplane manufacturing and the sales. And, this started all way back when, when the U.S. were complaining about the EU subsidizing Airbus um, and their manufacturing of airplanes. Um, and they were kind of putting tariffs on some of the airplanes and going, and this all went through the, this was all, you know, through the World Trade Organization. It was all kind of um, through the proper channels. It's been going on for, for years. And um, finally, they came to an agreement to suspend them, uh, kind of continue talks about this, but uh, really to kind of come together to um, fight or have a unified front versus, uh, versus China. So China is really trying to enter the market aggressively, uh, especially in the airplane manufacturing sector. And what we've seen in the past with China is when they, when they do this, they'll aggressively enter it and then they'll aggressively put subsidies to drive the price down. Um, and if they do that, um, it's going to really start to, you know, to hurt not only the EU, but the US, it's going to hurt Boeing, Airbus. So um, they kind of wanted to present more of a unified front versus China mm -hmm. to really go in there, maybe negotiate with them or, you know, barter something out to not have subsidies happen in this space. So um, mm -hmm. that's, that's promising to see. Uh, we'll see what it kind of comes down to. It's really a, a suspension right now. So uh, but it's, it's promising and most likely something will be, um, you know, will come to some agreement. Good, good. And, uh, you know, now, um, you know, we don't subsidize Boeing. So hopefully they can come to some kind of an agreement. That'd be great. That'd be great. No, um, exactly. Right? right? No, yeah, and, we don't. We don't. We just were tariffing yeah. or we were putting certain things on. Yeah. Uh, you level, know, to make it level the playing field. Correct. Exactly. Well, and then also um, the big news on the Alzheimer drug front, Biogenesis, uh, came through with this first breakthrough uh, in the development of, of a legitimate Alzheimer's drug. And uh, as people are living longer and longer, we're seeing more and more people fall prey to Alzheimer's. Uh, and you see cognitive issues where people are forgetting things or they, uh, they speak in one sentence and then they start on some other subject in the middle of a sentence. These are signs of Alzheimer's. Uh, so hopefully they can make further progress, but this is the first big progress in that Alzheimer's drug in a long time, 20 years. So that's great news. Uh, also happened since our last podcast, uh, the uh, wife, the 31-year-old wife of the famous drug king from the Sinaloa cartel down in Mexico, El Chapo, who has been in jail now for a while, convicted for pretty much the rest of his natural life. They finally got his wife. 
So uh, she admitted to helping him. I don't know whether she's going to see jail time, but I suspect she might as well. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, positive optimism. Uh, Friday, a week ago, Friday was the big opening in Chicago, and things are opening up all over the country. And every one of us has different experiences. Uh, Chris uh, knows that next to our headquarters office is a, a private health club called the East Bank Club. And when you would go inside the East Bank Club up into the men's locker room, every Monday, they used to have a bowl of ice cold apples. And it was just one of the nicest things ever. And so many of those good little things about life got stolen away from us during the pandemic. So when uh, the lockdowns happened, the club closed and it reopened, it was a dour place and there were no apples. Well, the good news, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, is the apples are back at the East Bank Club. That's the signal. Life is back. So we're hoping 2021 and the second half of 2021 is a lot better than certainly the first half and certainly last year. So things are things are looking up, wouldn't you say, Chris? Yeah, no, I mean, I think everyone's looking forward to some renormalization. Um, and I mean, it certainly felt that way. I think not only Chicago is, I think, one of the late ones to the party to a degree uh, with the reopening. So the fact that things are, you know, moving along here is positive. And I think that in a lot of other states, you know, it's been that way for maybe a month or so now. So it's, it's positive. I think things are moving forward. Um, and that's what we want to see. And there we are, everybody. We'll leave it there. Let me just again remind everybody, stay tuned uh, for our discussion with Tom Harden. We're going to talk about where the strength areas of the market are as people try to buy into technology or buy here, go there. What groups are working? Where's the market trending in the short run? Tom watches this very, very closely. And it's a separate discussion. And then, of course, our real estate discussion with Bill Himmelstein uh, will come right after that. So. For our whole four-star team, Laura, Chris, Christine, and Fred in Chicago, and our East Coast team, Tucker, Karen, and Brian, thanks again for listening, everybody. Thanks for being on the four-star podcast. Don't forget to give us a five out of five. And if anybody wants to go to Antarctica to listen, we still don't have anybody listen from Antarctica. We've only been on six continents, Chris, so we still got to get Antarctica going. Well, someday, someday. All right. Thanks, everybody. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the, the Four Star Podcast. We have a special guest who's uh, actually a guy we see a lot of, but he's still a very special guy and a very special guest to our podcast, and my good friend, Tom Harden. Tom is the CEO, founder, and chief investment officer of Canterbury Investments. Tom has got 30 years of experience in the investment business. He's an innovator, an educator, and a pretty brilliant guy. Um, has a bachelor's from Skidmore up in New York. Uh, he's been a Portfolio Management Institute uh, designee from the University of Chicago, my alma mater. So we have that maroon Chicago thing going on together. Uh, he's also, he served as regional director of EF Hutton's personal financial management department, moved to Morgan Stanley Portfolio Management, and then also you know, came on to found his own firm, uh, which is, of course, Canterbury. And Tom has been a guest lecturer, uh, colleges, universities, and he's really all about education. He wrote a book called Invest The Investor Revolution, which is a great one for folks to pick up and read. So with that, welcome Tom Harden to the podcast. Hey, good to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. It was me. great. 
I, I see you all the time. So it's like, it's not new to me, but new to our listeners. So uh, yeah. uh, good, good to see you, brother. Um, so, so, so Tom uh, does some really interesting things interfacing with Four Star and we're, we're kindred spirits and kind of watching what the market does. Uh, markets trending higher, lower, what groups are doing better. Tom, do you wanna just give us a, a minute or two about what's going on in the market now? What's leading, what's not, what do you see? Sure. Yeah, well, as you know, there's been a lot of sector rotation. I mean, uh, I think these sectors have more jukes and moves than uh, Colts quarterback or uh, running back. You know, it's uh, yeah, the yeah, leaders yeah. are kind of at the bottom and vice versa, but to kind of give you an idea of where we are right now, real estate is number one. Now, the way really? we measure this is volatility weighted relative strength. And what that means right. is that the strongest companies a lot of times will get to the top of the list because stocks tend to trend, but sometimes they get kind of parabolic. They get too far ahead and then they take a big hit. What we do is we rank these based on their volatility. So if one security has twice the volatility of another, it has performed twice as strong. So it puts all of these on an equal playing field. Cash could be number one, theoretically. So real estate was number one. The beginning of the year was number nine. That's out of 11. Uh, energy okay. is number two. It was number eight. Uh, I'm just going to do a few of these. Financials uh, was number four. And it was number two. So I didn't really move that much. But let's go to some of the ones that moved up. I'm sorry. Financials number, was number three. Now it's number seven. So that's fallen okay. off. That's just over the last few weeks. Uh, industrials, number one. Now they're right. number eight. Discretionary, right. number two. And that's mainly Amazon. Uh, is okay. now number nine. <laughs> kind of gives okay. you an idea of the rotation. Uh, material, yeah, yeah. number four. Now they're 10. The one consistent one is utilities. It was number 11, and it's still number 11. So, okay. Okay. So that, that may tell you something about interest rates there. Um, yeah. Bonds had a really bad year last year. And uh, now actually, and this continued through this year, but they've kind of picked up over the last couple of weeks. Uh, commodities had a good run. Now gold is, uh, is one of the weaker commodities where it was stronger. The dollar was weak. Now it's picked up some steam, has moved up through the list. And I think it's the number two currency right now was like, close to the bottom. So a lot of change. How about technology, Tom? Where was it? Wasn't last year all about technology? It was all about, it's been all about technology for about the last six or seven years. And that's what makes the market kind of look like 2000. You know, if you go back to 1993, technology made up about six or 7% of the S&P 500. And the S&P was pretty well balanced among the sectors because the S&P is a cap weighted index. The bigger the right. group gets, the more uh, the more impact it has. By the time we got to 2000, technology was 42, 43% of the market. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, technology is about 40 to 42% of the market. And I think over the last seven years, technology has gone up, say, seven, 800%. Back in 2000, mm -hmm. over seven, eight years, it went up about seven, eight, 900%. Most of that coming in the last two or three years, which again is very similar to now. So mm -hmm. uh, 
again, that's why it's kind of hard to beat the index because no portfolio manager, you know, is interested in risk management is going to put 40% plus of their, of their uh, portfolio in tech, tech related stocks. Yeah. Or in any one sector. Yeah. Or in any one sector. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Portfolio management's about risk management. You know, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so Tom, uh, judging by all those movements in the groups, really to be successful, you really do be, have to move things around a little bit, right? The set it and forget it portfolio may not always be the optimum thing to do. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think the set it and forget it uh, portfolio has done okay over the last few years because we haven't had anything resembling a bear market. Uh, and oh, okay. when you do see a drop, it's kind of more of a trading anomaly drops and then kind of snaps right back, kind of like it did back in, in March. But, uh, you know, securities are liquid for a reason. You know, they're all going to have bull markets and bear markets, and they're liquid because we need to manage the liquidity that's built into the markets. Mm -hmm. We need to know the difference mm -hmm. between you know, a security that has bullish characteristics versus one that has bearish characteristics. If we're buying a yeah. company, then we'd want to buy companies that have good earnings and profits, but that doesn't always equate to their stock going up. Well, in the, in the pre-discussion, Tom, we talked about comparisons between different stocks, and you had one particular that was quite interesting. It involved, uh, I think, IBM and Tesla. Is yeah, it, right? did. it did. I'm going to go through this kind of quick because there's some numbers, but it's it's very interesting. Okay, now tell me which company you yeah. really have, Brian. Uh, I'm going back to the inception of Tesla in 2013. IBM's earnings yield, which is the opposite of a PE ratio, right? Price divided by earnings. This is earnings by, okay. Here's the net profit. This is what Warren Buffett looks like for IBM in 2013. Up 2.7%, up 10.1, up 10.9, 7.4, 7.9, 9.5, and then last year was 5%. Very consistent. Uh, if you would have held that for that period of time, which was about eight or nine years, you would have, would have made 90%. $10,000 would be worth 19000 Very consistent. That's if you owned the company. Now, Tesla, first year lost $72 million, The next year, $300 million, The next year, $900 million, The next year, 2017, $2 billion dollars. 18, $1 billion, 2019, 900 million. And then they made some money last year. They made 2.2 billion. Their net loss since their inception is $4.6 billion. So if you own that company, you better have deep pockets to put more money in it. So we know the that big, IBM is, yeah. The big difference between these two securities. Big difference. One's profitable, the other's a big loser. Now let's look at the stocks. IBM, 2013, company made money, stock went down 2%. 2014, company made money, stock went down 14%. Next year, 14%. Next year, up 20, down 7, down 25 in 2018, up 17 in 2019, and then down 6 last year. If you would have bought and held that stock for the long term, which is almost nine years, you'd be down 34%. Oh, jeez. <laughs> now, Tesla, of course, lost money virtually every year. 2013, up 344%. Next year, 47, 7, 
down 10, that was 2016, up 45, up six, up 25, last year up 743%. Now, if I put $10,000 in Tesla on the, in the IPO, uh, I would be worth a million dollars, a million 42, or I'd be up 10,000%. Well, moral of the story, don't confuse companies with stocks. Don't confuse the underlying asset with the traded security. One's driven by profits and earnings. The other's driven by supply and demand. Two totally right. different features. So there's been more demand for Tesla than IBM, basically. Bottom line, more buyers and sellers in IBM uh, Tesla than IBM. <laughs> Interesting. So that so your work tracks all that, right, Tom? And and you uh, filter that work through to your portfolio thermostat, whether it be groups or individual names, right? Um, yeah. That that's how you manage how you kind of play that out. Like that's what you do. Yeah, the, the idea is really, it's all about portfolio management. No one could have predicted that IBM would have dropped 34% and nobody would have predicted that Tesla did what it did. What we really want to do is focus on creating efficient diversification. And what that means mm -hmm. is holding securities that do have these bullish characteristics, which is typically low volatility. And they, um, they move different from each other. Mm -hmm. and if they move different from each other, you squeeze the volatility down and you get a return from compounding, actually. You know, the killer of compounding is volatility or drawdowns. And it really, yeah. uh, you know, it kind of flies the face of a conventional wisdom, uh, which says there's a relationship between risk and return. You know, if you want more money, you have to take more risk and uh, have more time to go through the bumps in the road. And that's mm -hmm. true with companies, but it's not true with stocks because risk is defined as volatility. Volatility is a bear market characteristic and right. drawdowns or declines. Well, drawdowns are what we don't want in markets because it takes such a much higher return to get back to break even. So really the way you make the most money is by actually taking less risk protecting the downside. The upside is less important, but uh, yeah, the idea yeah. is you want to get that compounding, that geometric compounding over your lifetime, which makes you financially independent and allows you to, to keep that financial independence. So one, one theme might be that avoiding loss, Tom, is probably infinitely more important than, than, than upside, is avoiding loss. Uh, absolutely it is. It's, um, there's an example, um, you know, percentage return, which we always talk about versus dollar return. So mm -hmm. there's like three ways to make 50 per, say two ways to make 50%. One mm -hmm. way would be go up a hundred and then down 50, right? hundred dollars goes to 200 and then 50% drop brings you right back to break even. So if you mm -hmm. did that a few times, which the market actually did, going back to the mm -hmm. night, up 100% down, kind of a V pattern, yep. you're not getting anywhere, but you're up 50%. The other way would be, yeah. say, go up 65% and down 15. Okay, right. if you went up 65% and then went down 15, then you get the stair-step pattern. And the difference after about four of those swings would be something like a zero return versus like about a 260% return because you again get that compounding effect. 
So the bottom yeah. line is the best portfolio is the one that is the most efficient, the most efficiently diversified portfolio. And then, as you said, that's a moving target, right? I mean, your yeah. portfolio look, should look very different in a bear market than it does mm -hmm. in a low volatile bull market. And that's why right. they make securities liquid. So you can adapt, you can adapt to the market, kind of like your thermostat in Chicago. To get it to be 70 degrees in your office takes a different strategy uh, of like cold air than it did, uh, say, in January. Uh, when it was right. shooting the right amount of hot air. So uh, with yes. portfolio management, we're trying to keep that as stable as we can so we can get that compounding and keep the portfolio looking like it's in a bullish environment, regardless of what the outside environment is. So if the if most of the markets are going down, there's still something that's outperforming, right? Whether it be oh, yeah, and, and commodities, the, yeah, commodities, currencies, but uh, you know, inverse securities, ETFs that we didn't have before, Brian. I mean, it's it's crazy some of the tools that we have in the technology and applications. But if if the stock market, the the S and P five hundred is in a bear market, then the inverse is in a bullish environment because it goes the opposite direction, right? So as you fit a couple of those into the portfolio, you stabilize it. And let's say if you're long, whatever is the best thing out there, and then your inverse, the worst, the worst sectors or the worst country or whatever it is, then you stabilize the portfolio and you get that general upward trend. And that's really what makes the difference. I mean, you can, you know, money in a bull market's uh, not as difficult as stabilizing the portfolio and handling that well through through difficult periods. Well, the uh, crazy the crazy James Cramer on CNBC talks about that too, Tom, where he said there's a bull market out there somewhere all the time. You yeah. just got to find out what's, what's in a bull market phase and, and hop on. Well, that's, uh, as we said, the benefit we have today is that when you and I were uh, coming up in the business, you had stocks and bonds, and that was about it. Now you can own currencies, you can own commodities, you can own inverse, right. you name it. Real, and they real, real estate, everything. all kinds of different things. Yes. Well, this is a great, uh, great uh, lesson slash update, uh, Tom. Uh, any other thoughts you wanted to share with us today? Uh that I think is about it. I think that um, the, the main thing that we want to address here is that um, we, we not only want to own good securities, but the most important part is risk management and portfolio management. And I gave an analogy before, before we started this, and it's, it was kind of like an example of uh, the MIT school had three or four people who, who could cart, count, count cards in blackjack, and they would they would win about 70% of the time, but they ultimately blew up because randomness is not that random. Sometimes they just got unlucky and they were betting bigger and bigger amounts of money and their money management system is what created the problem for them. Not the fact that they were winning 70% of the time. Same thing's right. true with investing. We've got to be able to control the downside. If you can't right. control the downside, then you can't control your outcome. Yeah, no, that's really important. And as you know, we're all about that here. And you know, um, we're we're partners. Uh, I'm a client of your firm as well, as well as having you guys as a client of our firm. So we're in collaboration on all this stuff. And it's uh, 
it's important that investors realize the most important thing is to manage risk. Well, and again, Brian, we've known each other for a long time and have kind of similar backgrounds. And I have the absolute highest regards for you because you are doing cutting edge, innovative things that needed to be done in our industry. As we know, our industry has benefited from technology and incredible tools, but the methods are still the same as what they were 30, yeah. 40 years ago. We're, we're kind of behind. We're not like retail and Amazon and what they did, but you are on the cutting edge of introducing not only new concepts, but concepts that are evidence-based that have been tested and uh, you're taking full advantage of the technology and the, even more important, the applications to be able to run a firm like, uh, like the big firms just can't do. Yes. No, thank you, Tom. We're, we're all about that. And, uh, and, and, and you and I are in firm agreement on that, you know, the risk management and taking those tools in a way that the average investor can benefit from them, uh, not just a big institution. And uh, we're, we're trying to do that every day. So thank you. Um, this has been great. I, I think uh, this would be great if we did this as a regular thing. Maybe every couple of months we check in. Let's hear what Tom Harden's saying about the market and what's, what's up, what's down, what's in, what's out, and where are the trends today? That'd be a lot of fun. Love to do that. Love to do it. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being with us on this interview. And thank you, Tom, for joining us. And uh, everybody also stay tuned. Now we'll do an interview with Bill Himmelstein of the Tenant Advisory Group here in Chicago. We'll learn a little bit more about commercial real estate. Uh, Tom, thanks for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Take care. All right. Take care. Thanks. Okay, everybody, welcome back again to the podcast. Uh, we're very lucky today to have a special guest with us. It's a good friend of mine. His name is Bill Himmelstein. Uh, Bill is the CEO and founder of the Tag Group, uh, which is a commercial real estate broker and advisor in headquartered here in Chicago in our headquarters city. Uh, Bill uh, has distinguished himself having done over a billion dollars in real estate transactions in his career. And he'd just been honored as the, the 2020 superstar real estate broker uh, and, and very interesting distinction. Bill, welcome to the Four Star Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I've always uh, been a fan of yours, and I'm happy to share whatever whatever knowledge I can with, with your listeners. Well, we're, we're a fan of yours as well, and, and thanks for coming. You know, uh, in, in the pre-discussion, uh, one thing kind of came out uh, to me. I've, I've been talking to folks about real estate, Boy, what a weird life we've been through with the pandemic and all these things we've never seen, right? It's and it's been a wild ride. That's that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, whoever thought office towers would be barely empty and uh, you know, nobody would be going to work and live working in their basement and all this crazy stuff. So now it's kind of over, mostly over, and we need to look at where we're going. We've had a couple other bill discussions with different people in real estate residential. We've had another commercial broker who came on about six months ago and right in the middle of it. And uh, one of the things you said earlier when we, we were talking was, well, it's not as bad as you think. Maybe that's a theme for our discussion, uh, Bill. And 
And I've been telling folks that my, my view of this is uh, that very view that the, the reasons people went to high rise office towers or office space, there was a reason people, the human condition, why we congregate in offices. And I don't think humans have changed all that much. So I think we might go back to something like we saw before, but I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop salting the discussion. Maybe you should just tell us what you think, Bill. What What is the state of commercial real estate in Chicago and around the country? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. You know, a lot of people think that the vacancy rate, because there's only about 25% of people going into the office right now, they think that that means the vacancy rate is 75%. But these companies still have leases in place and landlords are still collecting 94% of what they were at a pre-pandemic level. So they're still collecting their rent. Uh, this The people aren't necessarily going in, but it's coming back. It's, it's increased significantly since the beginning of the year uh, uh, to about 25% right now in downtown Chicago, slightly higher uh, across the country with the highest cities being in Texas, um, Houston, Dallas, and Austin have the highest rates of people returning to the office, uh, upwards of 60%. We believe we'll get to about 50% uh, or so by Labor Day and continue to rise as the vaccination process continues to expand. Um, but the vacancy rate right now, uh, depending on whose numbers you look at, and I always look at CoStar because they're a, num they're a business that focuses on these numbers uh, and these statistics, whereas C.B. Richard Ellis and Jones Lang LaSalle, while they're large commercial real estate firms, um, you know, their, their research departments maybe aren't as robust as CoStar. Anyway, CoStar says we're at a vacancy rate right now of about 18%. To put that into perspective, the last two recessions, the dot-com bubble, um, as well as the financial crisis, we got to a vacancy rate of about 18%. So we're kind of right in the wheelhouse of our last two recessions. I do believe that that rate is going to continue to creep up. It's not going to, you know, the, the subleases have, for the most part, stopped. Uh, there's a couple more coming on the market. But for the most part, what we're going to see is as tenants have leases rolling over, in general, I think there's going to be somewhat uh, of a reduction of their space needs. Uh, they're going to have a uh, most employers are going to be forced to uh, employ a hybrid model, meaning employees will work from home some of the time and work from the office some of the time. However, one part, Brian, that I think a lot of people forget about is that the square feet per employee is going to increase. Now, in the 21 years since I've been in commercial real estate, so, so in the year 2000, the average square feet per employee across all industries in downtown Chicago was 470 square feet per employee, led by law firms at about 730 square feet per employee. Fast forward to right before the pandemic, where the trend over the last decade, decade and a half had been getting rid of law libraries, making smaller partner size offices and, and having a one, maybe a one or two size offices for non-partners and partners as well as other tech companies jamming as many people as they could into bench seating uh, and, and the cubicles. Now all of a sudden we realize that 
you know, airborne diseases can be caught through not social distancing. But before that is exactly. So in, in 2019, the average square feet per employee across all industries in downtown Chicago office space had reduced to 190 square feet. So we had wow. been moving down this path of jamming more and more people. However, going forward, now that we realize proximity, you can catch different illnesses, it's not gonna go back up to 470. But what we are gonna see is a lot more private offices where that had been reducing over time, you know, putting the CEO out in, in cubes with everyone else. Uh, we're gonna see more private offices, more collaboration space, um, more space in between those cubes and those bench seating. And so, you know, I can easily see uh, the, the square feet per employee going up 20, 30, 50%, you know, significant amount. It's not going to go back to 470, but we could get back up to 250, 280. So that factor, even though you might have less people coming into the office on any given day, you're going to need more space per team member. And that'll help to keep the uh, vacancy rate not climbing so high. You know, um, there, there's so many office towers in a city like Chicago or other major city, and, and they're often owned by these real estate trusts rather than individuals because they're such big, big investments, right? So they're not owned by an individual. Um, and, and the thought process said that the REITs were going to take a real bath on that, but it doesn't sound like that from what you're telling me. They're, they're going to probably refill up, aren't they? I, I would predict that absolutely they'll fill up. We'll, we'll stop the construction. We'll slow down construction for a little while. We'll let the demand catch up with the supply that's out there. Um, but essentially, another key factor in the supply and demand equation is pricing, right? How much does it cost now to rent office space? An interesting statistic is as of January 2021, the rental rates in downtown Chicago, average rental rates were actually up a dollar a square foot. The face rate, now that's important to keep in mind because the face rate is how a building owner is able to refinance their, their property or the valuation for which they sell their property. But what has really been coming down has been the net effective rates, meaning uh, when you take your rental rate and you factor in the concessions like free rent and tenant improvement allowance. So to put that into perspective, pre-pandemic, if I was doing a five-year lease with a tenant, I could expect to get approximately three months of free rent. Post-pandemic, that five-year tenant could get up to nine months of free rent on their five-year lease. And now tenant improvement dollars on a 10-year lease pre-pandemic, I might get anywhere uh, 80 $90 a square foot. Now I'm getting $125, $130 a square foot. So while landlords are keeping their face rates high and we're having a lot more you know, real estate taxes being passed through to tenants on their rental rates. So we're seeing, you know, that's one of the reasons we're seeing an increase in face rates, but we're seeing a, a, about a 20 to 30% decline in the net effective rate. So as we see those business terms get more and more aggressive, tenants are going to say, well, you know, 
we needed 10,000 feet, but gosh, we can, if we're saving 30%, we can take 13,000 feet, you know, and there is still going to be economic growth. There's a lot of investment dollars that have been sitting on the sideline that's going to be deployed. Um, and, and a lot of the companies, both in Chicago and across the country, are landing tremendous amount of venture capital and, and investment funds. And so that's going to spurn growth. But as we head out of this pandemic, what I'm predicting is that you know, over the next, I would say, less than three years, uh, our, our vacancy rate will be back towards what I would describe and what real estate folks would describe as the equilibrium level, which is about 12.5% vacancy rate, which means neither the landlord nor the tenant has a clear advantage in their negotiations. But over the next two years, you know, two and a half years, the tenant are going to have significant advantages in their negotiations for space, in office space. That I see for sure. So, um, Bill, that equilibrium level, is that going to be similar to the equilibrium level then prior to the pandemic? Do you think it's going to get back to that level? So our our vacancy rates, I'll I'll throw out the vacancy rate prior to the pandemic was about 7 or 8%. The vacancy rate in the last two economic expansions, actually the last three, the height of the last three economic expansions was about 7%. So we were kind of right there. It was a very uh, landlord favorable market. They could drive, dictate terms. They could, you know, if you left, they had another tenant in the, in the background waiting to take the space. And so in my mind, equilibrium is really more about where there isn't a real advantage per se for the tenant nor the landlord, it's really right. uh, I would call it a healthy, a healthy market, and I think we'll be back to a healthy market in under three years' time. Okay, okay, very, very interesting. Uh, you mentioned there's going to be con- some concessions, and and the uh, renter is going to have a little bit of an advantage, but we'll go back to normal reasonably soon. That's my belief. I mean, I, everybody has their opinions, right, of what's going to happen. But for the 250 plus business owners that I speak to on a regular basis, many of them clients, um, you know, their conversation that I, I, I have with them, it's not, we're never coming back to the office. There's probably been three businesses that I've spoken to since the start of the pandemic that have said we're not coming back. And to, and to put some context around that, one of those companies is going to be out of business. So they're not going to have people or a business to come back to in the office space. One yes. of them already kind of had one foot out the door. They were a complete uh, developer shop. So their people were kind of out on an island anyway, doing their software development. And um, they really didn't have a belief in the, the, I guess, the benefits of office space. And then the third one was a company that, had their culture built largely around a commercial kitchen where every day their team had lunch together. And I think as they get away from that kind of culture building exercise uh, of of having lunch together every day, they're gonna realize that their culture is eroding. They're not having as sticky uh, of employees as they used to. They're not having the same type of collaboration as they used to. They're not having the same type of mentorship and knowledge share that they used to. You're certainly not going to get those chance encounters and quick 
one, you know, water cooler conversations where people are running ideas and questions past each other. A lot of productivity happens within proximity because you can walk down the floor, walk down the hall, ask a quick question to somebody, and then you're off and running or not, right? But when you have to schedule a call, oh, I can't do it tomorrow. How about early next week? You've just lost five days before you can get together, have that quick conversation that either spurs activity or stops activity. But my, my point being is there's a lot of um, benefits to having your people together. Now, right now, as we know, the employee in general has the upper hand. There's a labor shortage in, in all different areas of, of, of employment, uh, blue collar, white collar. So they kind of have the upper hand of saying, well, we want more flexibility um, in, our, in our life. We want to be able to work from home. And I'll admit, I've, I'm, I'm at home right now, as you can see from my children's artwork in the background. But yes. there's certainly some benefits. But I think that in the long run, the, the benefits of being together to collaborate, to build culture, to mentor, to knowledge share, uh, to have chance encounters. I mean, when you have a Zoom meeting, you know, versus a, a, an in-person meeting, there's conversations happening before and after the meeting in person. Those conversations aren't happening on a Zoom, you know, and there's one person talking on a Zoom, whereas in person, a lot of people can have conversations going on at once. But I think as we start looking ahead to uh, our, our workforce transitioning, I think both the employee and the employer are going to remember the reason why they had office space to begin with. And I think that our new normal within two and a half years, three years time from now is going to look very similar to our old normal. That's, that's what I'm hearing from business owners. And that's what I'm predicting. You can take that to the bank, put it in the books. Well, Bill, I, I appreciate your comments. I, we noticed that ourselves, our firm, uh, you know, our, our story is we did, we did, uh, you know, go remote for a period of time. I personally was in every day because we had some advisors joining. So we, we had to come in because we had some business to do right in the middle of the pandemic. But then our team came back and in those couple months where people were remote and staggered, we were not as productive. It was really clear. We get so much more done when we're all together in the same room. I mean, and, and you raised another point that I failed to mention, which was onboarding new, new team members. When you onboard right. someone that you've never met in person, that never comes into the office, what do you think the reason is they're joining your company? Is it because they love your culture? And then what are the reasons they're staying? Because they love the people? Absolutely not. They're not building relationships. They're not getting immersed in the culture. They're, they're working for you because you're willing to pay them the more money than anyone else. And that's not how you want to be seen as an employer is the one that pays the most money. That's not going to translate to success in the long run. What translates to success in the long run, and guys like Peter Drucker will, will have done tons of research on this, they'll tell you, it's culture, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And without having employees that buy into the culture and buy into the relationships they've built and want to stick around, your turnover is going to skyrocket. And that, you know, if you, if you look into the research on that, there's a tremendous cost around employee turnover and finding new people, training them, 
getting them in, you know, to, uh, to the level of productivity that the outgoing person was at, that could be a much higher cost than having office space and, and having your people come in and form relationships and having that onboarding process uh, much more buttoned up. So I think that's what we're gonna learn over the next two, three years is that, um, you know, yeah, there are some conveniences, there are some benefits to working from home and, and hiring people from anywhere in the country. And, and there are different companies doing different things have various degrees of success, right? I mean, there, there's, there's just different industries that might be more conducive to like programming, right? When you're on your own island, doing your own work, you don't need to talk to anybody. Okay, hey, find a spot that's productive for you and get the work done. But work that's more collaborative in nature, where you need that mentorship, you need the senior leadership uh, to bounce ideas off of, um, those are the types of firms uh, and businesses that are going to really remember how valuable it was to be in the office and, and, and need that, that space. Absolutely. Hey, Bill, uh, this has been great. I, I have one other kind of side question for you. It's related to your business and part of maybe a subset is, you know, before the pandemic, there was a big move into the WeWork type spaces and it used to be Regis, then it, WeWork came on and then that kind of blew up. But, um, you know, what, what's, what's the future of that shared office space, you know, with a, a beer tap out in the main area and uh, all that, all those. Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely, Brian. And you bring up a very interesting point because that big move to to co-working was really just uh, WeWork's marketing department telling people that they were coming in. But really what was happening with WeWork, a lot of their spaces were 25% filled, maybe 50% filled. They were hemorrhaging money. They were losing well over you know billions of dollars in 2019, in 2020, and we see that continuing. Now, what the right business for co-working, in my mind, is a company that's under eight people. Because really, on a per square foot basis in co-working, you're paying 80 to $90 a square foot. Whereas you can have your own space for 35 to $40 a square foot, half as much. It's just the nice thing about co-working, especially for a startup, is that everything's taken. You got a receptionist, you got your internet, you got your, you know, copy machine, whatever it is. It's all all the infrastructure is there already. Co-working was not very successful with the large corporations, as WeWork would have led you to believe. What what those companies thought, what you know, the Fortune 500s of the world thought, is we're going to go into a WeWork. And we'll be able to collaborate and pick the brains of this smart young talent. But let me tell you, there were two types of tenants in the typical co-working space, like a WeWork or an Industrious or a Convene. They were the young, intelligent kids who were working hard, building a company, doing something impactful, and really focused, working hard. Those kids didn't take the time to leave their business to go talk to some Fortune 500 so they could share their ideas with them. They were like, look, if you want my ideas, you can hire me. You can pay me for them. The other type were some young kids who were just looking for a place to go, a social outlet, if you will. Uh, they didn't have much going on. And the Fortune 500 companies didn't want those kids' ideas. 
They didn't want to talk to them. And so that whole, you know, Newman was the, was the CEO and founder. He wanted you to believe that it was this big, um, uh, you know, community-based people, but it didn't really work out that way. And croquet and, and you know, ping pong and all this stuff. Yeah. I and mean, that's not what work is. Work is not all about drinking beer and, and playing games. You know, work is about coming up with great ideas and then executing and, and getting, you know, getting things right. done, making things happen. Uh, I'm not saying that can't happen in, in a WeWork, but they their marketing department did an amazing job uh, of making you believe that, uh, WeWork was full and they had tons of you know, Fortune 500 and enterprise level businesses. What in reality, what's happened is they've been giving back a lot of space because it wasn't filled. Uh, landlords today are taking back that co-working and instead of leasing it out to uh, someone like a WeWork or an Amada, they're just third party managing it themselves. They're keeping it as landlord owned space it's their space and, and they're having it um, managed by a third party. I believe that where the growth in co-working is going to be in suburban markets because there they can actually have a community feel. They can actually bring the community together and, and do things that support uh, the growth of that community. So I think there will still be opportunities for more co-working spaces in the suburbs. The downtown markets are dramatically oversupplied. And if you look at any of my blog posts, uh, I was saying this years ago that the, the co-working market is drastically oversupplied. There's a market for it, but it's for companies that have eight employees or less because I believe that's where it still makes sense financially. Uh, and it's great for flexibility for early companies who need to add or subtract people. Uh, they can do that very easily, but for more mature companies, they want their own branding, they want their own space, and it's going to save you a lot of money. I'll tell you, Brian, I take a lot of, I, I take a lot more tenants out of co-working than I do that I put into co-working. And the ones that I put into co-working are usually ready to get out of it for one reason or another within a, a year or two. That, so that's, I mean, I get paid extremely well. For tenants that want to go into co-working, but I want to tell people the truth. I want to tell them my experience, what I've heard from other tenants, and really not all co-working spaces are created equal. Amada and 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 Regis, they're much more professional. They've got your law firms and your accounting firms, and uh, it's people that are there to work and earn a living and make money. We work was really just a marketing juggernaut that never materialized. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense uh, for, for certain businesses, um, but they drastically oversupplied the market. Um, and so co-working and the long-winded answer is co-working will still be a viable opportunity and a viable resource for certain businesses. But I think it's, it's not what we were cracked up to be. It's not for the Fortune 500. Um, it's not for larger businesses because they're going to get raked over the coals with their rental rate. You're better off getting your own space with your own brand identity. Uh, there's incredible deals to be had. The, the co-working spaces weren't nearly as responsive to uh, having more aggressive deal terms uh, or things like that. They're starting to get there now. Um, 
but the best deals are going to be if you're, if you're 10 people or more, uh, you should get your own space, whether it's a sublease or direct with the building. That's where you're going to find the right opportunities, in my opinion. Nice. Well, thank you, Bill. And I think our, our podcast listeners and uh, those watching the videos at home can tell you lots of experience. You know the business very, very well. And so if anybody wants to work with you, Bill, they can call you at your office at Tag Group in Chicago, right? Yeah. So our, 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 our website is tagcommercialbroker.com. Uh, it's Tenant Advisory Group is the name of our business. You can find me on LinkedIn, you know, Bill Himmelstein. Um, but I, I'll tell you what I'm most proud of, Brian, over the 21 years and the 13 years I've had Tenant Advisory Group is the team that I've built. I believe wholeheartedly that I've got the best brokers that push for the right space for our clients that, that supports their culture, that helps them in attracting and retaining top talent. And then we go to negotiate the best deal terms that we possibly can. And this is reflected in our testimonials. You know, we have over 101 client testimonials on our website. We have nearly 40 all five-star reviews on Google. Compare that with any brokerage firm in the country and they'll have anywhere from zero to five testimonials on the website, zero to five reviews on Google with a mixed bag. I mean, if you look at what the clients are saying, we knock it out of the park for our clients. And I'm just so proud of my team for really being the ones on the front line that, that are supporting our clients that are getting them incredible deals and, and ultimately finding them the right space that's going to support their culture and help them attract and retain top talent, which is, that's how you grow a successful business. That's great. And, and uh, the folks at home should also know that Bill Himmelstein is one of the master networkers of the world. I've never seen anybody, Bill, that is so well connected and knows everybody everywhere. Well, I appreciate that. And I like to use the term, I'm a connected connector. Because in my connected. mind, it's about listening to people's needs and connecting them to the people that can help fill those needs. And, and nothing, I enjoy nothing more than when someone says, you know, our ideal client is a law firm. And I'll say, great, I know 75 managing partners of law firms. Let's talk about who of those people would be good potential clients for you. And then making a connection that leads to a potential client for someone else. Brian, you're very good at this too. I mean, this podcast is a perfect example, but, you know, I really enjoy connecting those dots, listening to what people are saying, and then bringing them the resources they need to help solve problems in their business, to support the growth of their business, because ultimately a rising tide lifts all boats and, and businesses that are more successful are gonna be better for, for all of us. Excellent. Well, Bill, this has been great. Really appreciate you being on with our podcast listeners and maybe we can do this again in six months, a year and get an update from you. You got it, Brian. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been an honor and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thank you, Bill, for being on the podcast and and everybody uh, look forward to the next episode coming out very soon. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about maximizing your stock market returns with the least amount of time and effort, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com and download our free guide on the 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals. If you felt any benefit from this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this with anyone you think will also find value and benefit from this. And please follow Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube to see all the short video clips covering the most valuable moments from today's episode. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We can't wait to tell you everything we're seeing in the financial investment markets. This podcast is provided by Four Star Wealth Advisors for the general uh, public and general information purposes only. The information is not considered to be an offer to buy or sell any securities or investments. Investing involves the risk of loss and investors should be prepared to bear potential losses. Investments should only be made after thorough review with your investment advisor, considering all factors including personal goals, needs, and risk tolerance. Four Star is an SEC registered investment advisor, maintains a principal business in the state of Illinois. The firm may only transact business in states in which it's notice filed or qualifies for a corresponding exemption from such requirements. For information about Four Star's registration status and business operations, please consult the firm's Form ADV disclosure documents, the most recent versions of which are available on the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov. 